Welcome to Inspired Money, the live stream podcast featuring inspiring money stories and inspiring lifestyles. Together, we'll learn to make more, give more, and live more. For an interactive experience, join us live at youtube.com slash inspired money every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. A watch, when you finally find one, it really becomes your best friend, especially someone that travels. You got your watch. And it really does. I mean, people, you talk to your watch. Inspired Money is co-created by Runnymede Capital Management and Eagles Vision Creative Collaborative Media Design. We are live in three, two, one. Aloha, Inspired Money Makers. Welcome to Inspired Money, the show that explores fascinating stories and insights surrounding wealth, investments, and the pursuit of financial freedom. I'm your host, Andy Wong, financial advisor at Runnymede Capital Management. And in this episode, we're talking about watches. Last September on episode seven, we learned that timekeeping is an art, a nod to human ingenuity, from mechanical marvels on our wrists to luxury timepieces that transcend necessity. A watch can be stylish, fashionable, or commemorate a milestone in your life. Our focus today, the investor's journey, Andy's first watch acquisition. So I'm thinking about buying a watch, and I get it. Watches may seem like an extravagant choice in a world where you can get the time on your phone, on a computer, or a TV. But there's something undeniably enchanting about the craftsmanship, the history, and the prestige that comes with wearing a carefully crafted timepiece. Here's the catch, though. I've got a budget to keep. You see, I've got, I'm saving for three college tuitions in my near future. So how do you balance the the desire for luxury with the responsibility of financial planning? Join me on this journey as I navigate the twists and turns of the watch market, seeking advice from a stellar panel of guests. I've gathered a group of experts who are not only passionate about timepieces, but also understand the delicate balance between indulgence and financial prudence. Will they tell me to up my budget? Probably. Will they share insights that could redefine the way we perceive luxury investments? Let's find out and explore this fascinating world of watches together. I'm sure to learn a lot, and I hope that you do too. Let's bring in our panelists. We've got Dan Spitz, who is back. He's a third-generation master watchmaker, former lead guitarist of the award-winning thrash metal band Anthrax. With Swiss and American degrees in watchmaking and micromechanical engineering, Dan's illustrious career includes roles as the headmaster watchmaker of complications specialist for Chopard, instructor and juror for the prestigious GPHG Awards. Dan, I'm so glad that you're back. What is GPHG? Uh, well, thanks for having me, first of all. Again, I guess I did okay the first time. And- I was asked about <laughs> um, GPHG is the would be the equivalent of the, the Academy Awards for high horology. Uh, it's done in Switzerland once a year, and uh, there's a, a board and the jurors who vote on the most uh, different categories in watches as you would vote for music or at the Grammys or for film uh, the Academy Awards, and uh, it's a uh, it's an incredible, incredible um, event and an honor to have your timepiece 
voted into that as they would for any other field of music or, or television. If you do, you know, you're kind of given that stamp uh, of approval. And uh, nowadays, it's not just the big brands. Uh, independent watchmaking is actually almost half of each category that I vote on. That is very cool. We've got Gary Getz, retired CEO of Strategos, a prominent watch enthusiast and known for his diverse timepiece collection showcased on his Instagram page, Gary G underscore one. He's the resident collector on the website quillandpad.com. Gary's also a GPHD juror and his love of the art of luxury watchmaking is infectious. Gary, what are you wearing on your wrist? Oh, I, I you know, I, you're a watch guy already, even if you don't have a watch. If the first question is, what, what are you wearing? And uh, today I've got, uh, just for this occasion, where we're talking about watches and money, I've got this Patek Philippe Nautilus uh, reference 5740 perpetual calendar. So it's a watch you never need to set the date. It keeps track of the number of days in the month and the passage of the leap years and all the rest of that good stuff. And in keeping with today's trends, it's a fairly sporty watch that, uh, that you can wear. Beautiful watch. Dan, are you wearing a watch? No, uh, I'm actually, uh, I don't wear watches, believe it or not. Um, then there's other people just like me in my field. Um, it, you know, I, I feel weird if I would wear my, own watch, and uh, I just uh, I, I don't I don't wear watches. It's, it's just a weird feeling for me. In fact, I just saw um, uh, one of the best live watchmaking speeches from um, Watch Week in Dubai by a friend, uh, yeah, from, from uh, Steve, uh, one of the world's top watchmakers, a gentleman named Stephen McDonald, and he he makes most of the, the actual movements, the gears that, that goes in a watch for uh, MBNF timepieces, which is some of the most complex movements on planet Earth ever created. In his little house, like I am here, but we have massive workshops. And, and he said the same thing, it feels like it's gonna burn his wrist. <laughs> I go by him all the time. That's what he says, I feel the same way. I used to, when I was younger, you know, wear my Pateks. My grandfather gave me uh, Calatravis because uh, I grew up in a you know, watchmaking household. So my dad loved Vacheron Constantine's and he had uh, a vintage Rolex he wore daily. I would take care of him so I became uh, certified. He let me inside that thing so I'd rebuild it. But now I, I don't, they're in the safe. I just work. I just work on my masterpieces and that's it. You work on them and you get your time from your phone. So I, I, I would love to build, you know, wear one of my, what I'm working on now, my, my new uh, detent escapement single impulse, what it's done. But I would rather give that love, uh, you know, of what I built to, to somebody else. I mean, it is really about sharing, sharing love. That is what watchmaking is. It, the, the watch itself, it becomes our friend. You know, you really have to bond with it. When you get to a point in life where you can afford one that rep it can represent yourself. We're going to get into that. I look forward to it. We're, we're going to be able to dive deeper in this episode with both Dan and Gary, because we're also hoping to have a third panelist, Katie Cassidy, who is going to join us, the actor uh, from Arrow and other TV and film. Unfortunately, she's on vacation, and she was hoping to still make it for this because she told me she's a workaholic. But 
I just got a text. It looks like her Wi-Fi is running about half the speed where it needs to be. So I think she's probably going to be enjoying a drink on the beach while we talk about watches. Let's go straight into segment one. In the realm of luxury and time, exquisite watches stand not just as keepers of hours and minutes, but as emblems of artistry and astute investment. Today we delve into the captivating world of these masterful timepieces, where each tick is a stroke of genius, each design a legacy in the making. Envision a world where timepieces transcend their basic function, becoming canvases of history, symbols of sophistication, and vessels of financial wisdom. The intricate mechanics beneath the surface of renowned brands like Rolex, Omega, and others narrate stories of unmatched craftsmanship and precision. These watches represent more than luxury. They symbolize a savvy investment journey. They are objects of desire that can appreciate over time, mirroring the sophistication of their owners and the foresight of collectors. What truly elevates these timepieces to objects of investment? Is it the meticulous artisanship, the heritage they carry, or their rarity that fuels demand? Each watch is a unique saga, intertwining history with modern innovation transcending its role as a mere timekeeper to become a treasure that grows in value both sentimentally and in the marketplace. Join us as we explore this enchanting world of elegance and legacy, where the art of luxury watch investment unfolds, revealing stories of prestige, timelessness, and financial acumen. Gary, I've heard you say that there are more watches that you like and want than you can possibly buy. What criteria matter to you most in a watch? Let's see. Well, uh, you know, people uh, who read my stuff say that I'm obsessed with uh, my friend Terry, who has this uh, taxonomy for thinking about watches. And I'll just start with that, that there are watches, there there are, sorry, foundational watches, there are patronage watches, and there are fun watches. And there are different criteria for each of those for me. So, uh, when it comes to a foundational watch, something that you could have as as the basis of a collection that um, is a recognized piece. There, it's it it's a lot about um, you know is the watch representative of its maker? Is it something where you say, oh yes, of course that's a Patek Philippe, or for an independent, yes, of course that's a Carignan. Uh, where where you you know it's it's something that that reflects the values of the brand of the maker. Uh, beyond that, certainly, uh, the types of complications, the quality of the finishing, uh, the visual appeal. Ultimately, you know, when I said on the jury of the Grand Prix, the, the word I used a lot was coherence. Does every part of the watch go with every other part? Um, and uh, is you know, can, can we recognize the front from the back and the back from the front? Um, Patronation. You know, we'll come back to that later when we talk about independence, maybe. Uh, that's a lot more about supporting the work of living artists like Dan. And then there are fun watches where I just, you know, I just like the thing. I can't explain why. I go, I'm, I'm not doing a lot of scientific research on it, um, but I'm uh, I'm able to uh, understand that basically I want it, I can afford it. If the value goes to zero, I don't really care. When you buy a watch, are you thinking about just Wearing it for life, or do you think about it as an investment, and will it appreciate in time? You know, I was—I've been on panels and you know, over the years, and I'm—I'm uh, I'm on the record many times to say I don't believe watches are investments. Uh, that said, uh, well, I, and 
you know, if we turn the clock back to 2017, not that long ago, uh, 2018 even, uh, when watch collectors got together and talked about, you know, buying a watch, the question wasn't, am I, am I going to make money? Uh, the question was, uh, am I going to get hurt? Uh, you know, getting hurt was the big term. You know, am I going to lose 30 to 50% uh, the moment that I, that I walk out of a store uh, or, you know, the, the watch comes in the mail. Uh, and, but, you know, to some extent that's, that shifted. We've had this big boom in values, which is now softened to some extent. And watches have gone from being a kind of a niche hobby uh, to being a mainstream luxury category. And I think, you know, to, to the extent that now among a much broader population of people, watches are seen as collectible objects. Uh, they've become potential stores of value. Dan, as a master watchmaker, can you share insights into the craftsmanship, the, those aspects that may enhance a watch's investment potential? Gary had a couple of good points because uh, he, he ran the gamut that we were talking about just a little earlier, that there's, there are collectors from the bottom to the top. And uh, watchmaking has changed just recently in the last 10 or 15 years with the, and the independent uh, watchmakers show what's happened. So someone like, um, I'll pick a name, uh, Philip Dufour, everybody who even just trickles into um, the independent watchmaking world will hear this name in the beginning. Uh, if you bought one of Philip Dufour's early watches when independent watchmaking at our level now was just birthing, uh, you would have paid around $45,000 for Philip's watch. And that would have been one of the greatest investments of your entire probably life because his watches are, or that watch is now worth millions. Not just one watch, but there's a series of watches. And there are other people in independent watchmaking in the beginning that that also applies for as well as the big brands, but as Gary, as Gary noted, when you go with the major brands, it's always going to go up and down. It's been like that forever. It's just supply and demand. How much you know supply will they hold back to, to create the demand? Because they're just conglomerates. They're massive, huge, small cities of factories pumping out timepieces. No matter how small they would like you as a collector to believe that there's you know three or four guys on the top of a Swiss mountain building your Patek Philippe. <laughs> No, it's like Ford Motor Company. It's quite, quite, quite different. Be it they are incredible timepieces. But now, because of that collectability um, of, of timepieces, we, we don't need to tell time on our wrist. When mom used to send people out uh, in my parents' generation and the generation before them, if you left the house going to school, you had to watch on your wrist because you had to know what time to be home. Uh, we don't need that. So timepieces have become art that means the front of the timepiece or when you turn it over the mechanics so now the mechanics have become art meaning someone such as myself i have a certain way i finish my my, my timepieces which are uh, it's, it's all done by hand and specialized machines that take years to find them through switzerland and restore them and that's the story right that one machine used to do coastal stripes uh, at, at when Rolex oh, just opened their doors and I have that machine now because now they moved to CNC. So each one of us in Watchmaker have our own little story and how we finish our watches. And guess what? That is now art, just like a painting in your home. So we are now not 
watchmakers. I don't even really like to call myself watchmakers. I don't like awards or anything like that. Um, I mean, on my on my Instagram, you'll see I, I call myself a horological manipulator. I'm just an artist of micro mechanics. And if you'd like my art, you get my art through a, micro, a small micro machine you can strap to your wrist. It doesn't need to tell time anymore, even though it does. So investment wise, that's just one person. If you would have invested in V&A Halter, Gary mentioned earlier, one of his early pieces, you'd be a very wealthy man today. Um, I mean, his, some of his pieces started around $600,000. Um, and there's a very long waiting list for uh, Roger W. Smith. I'm naming all indies because that's the world where I kind of live in. And I view the indies, the true indies, where there's less than four or five watchmakers building them uh, as a very good investment. Even and now, they, they, it, what's happening with the real investors in watches is behind the scenes. Before one of my friends releases a watch, or there's a new gentleman who's young and wants to build his own timepiece, comes out with his watch. He makes some drawings and some renders and whatever he's going to do. And behind the scenes, he presents it to these collectors, and they invest in them. They gamble. They're gambling with their money. For, because they love watches, but on top of that, if they have that person's early piece and he becomes famous later on, guess what they have in the safe? So they invest. They give him half his money that he needs to get going, and they find five or ten guys to invest in very expensive timepieces. And sometimes that works out very well. But don't invest in watches for investment reasons because it could all crash down and kill you. <laughs> yeah, which Gary touched upon that. Gary, I love the idea of patronage, foundational, and fun. Within that mix, for you, for your collection, what's your thinking on manual wind, automatics, quartz? Well, you know, a lot of people think quartz is a dirty word, um, but uh, I, actually, I own quartz watches. I own a Brut watch, which is a micro brand. You got a John Ferrer, super guy. And the reason I own that, and it's a $400 watch. And the reason I bought that watch is that uh, it's visually very distinctive. It's a fun watch. Uh, it's cool looking. It looks like nothing else. Um, you know, that's great. As far as uh, automatic winding versus manual winding, I think that's a matter of taste. I think, again, it, you know, some watches, and there's some, like perpetual calendar is the watch I'm wearing now. It's supposed to say wound all the time. It better be self-winding, automatically winding, because otherwise when you take it out of the safe, you know, you can screw it up trying to reset all the dates and everything. So you just keep it on a winder it runs forever. Uh, you know, a, a dress watch or even some sport watches. It's it's nice. It's nice having that tactile experience, you know, winding it, especially if a watch, um, you know, Dan, you mentioned uh, Dufour, his simplicity has the greatest winding feel, I think, of any watch ever made. And you just sit and you wind it and they click, 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 click. And it just, there's just something really nice about it. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I think, Andy, you bring up a good point. There are all sorts of ways of thinking about an assortment of watches and what appeals to you and what kind of variety you want. I mean, there's some people you know, who say you're not a collector unless you collect railroad watches between the years of 1873 and 1882 or military watches from following year to year. I don't actually believe that, right? For me, it's about having an assortment of pieces, each of which says something about its maker and uh, you know, is, is a piece that in and of itself uh, makes sense. I love that. All right, let's go to segment two. In the world of luxury watches, 
certain iconic brands stand as beacons of both timeless craftsmanship and astute investment. Delving into this exclusive world, we highlight the masterpieces that have become symbols of elegance and fiscal wisdom. First, consider Rolex, the pinnacle of horological investment. Their sports models are especially revered, with collectors and enthusiasts alike seeking their sophisticated designs and enduring value. Rolex's commitment to excellence has cemented its status as a cornerstone in any watch investment portfolio. Turning to Omega, this brand's legacy is woven into the fabric of timekeeping history. Known for innovation and style, Omega's timepieces encapsulate a blend of classic design and modern technology. They are investments in craftsmanship and heritage. Audemars Piguet, a name synonymous with luxury and innovation, has seen its creations rise in value in the secondary market. Each piece is a testament to the brand's dedication to excellence in watchmaking. Vintage watches also hold a special place in the investment landscape. Their historical significance and unique stories make them highly desirable to collectors, often eclipsing the allure of newer models. Each brand represents a chapter in the grand story of luxury watchmaking, a narrative of excellence, precision, and enduring value. Gary, I want to ask you about your top picks for luxury watch brands, the big brands in okay. 2023. Well, you know, if, if you look at auctions, there are two brands that matter, Patek Philippe and Rolex. Um, you know, and you look at the big auction houses and particularly Philips, which is the leader, I think. Um, and you look at their catalogs, the, the watches that get good realizations and that either meet or exceed their estimates uh, are Patek and Rolex. And that's been true for some time. Uh, in terms of you know, the market writ large, um, you know, in the in the intro to this section, you talked a little bit about Audemars Piguet. Uh, you know, they're not everyone's taste, but on the other hand, they've done a great job of making the migration into being more of a fashion and lifestyle brand. So, you know, to horological purists, um, maybe some of the things that they're doing, uh, particularly with their marketing, but also with some of the special edition watches they're making, are you know, not to people's taste, but they've been enormously successful. Uh, you know, Richard Meal, uh, which is a smaller brand, kind of almost an independent, uh, you know, big Formula One presence, um, you know, and the prices of those watches have skyrocketed, dance, get given it the thumbs up. First that one, bro, first that. There we, okay, there we go. Uh, F1. I don't get my hat. Yeah, good. Well, you know, and, and, and there, I, I won't, I won't have an F1 argument with you right now, man. Uh, but, but, you know, even, but, you know, you think of kind of who's, who's coming up a little bit, uh, you know, Cartier, uh, which for a long time, I think people saw as, as kind of a jewelry brand, uh, in a way relative to watches, you know, they had a, a time where they made, were making these unbelievable, fantastic, big complications with Carol Forestier and that really didn't work for them, but now they've gone back to, classic styling and some, you know, very clever work with the visuals of the watches and, uh, you know, new versions of their crash watch. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I have a good friend and Dan, you probably know, Eric Koo, who's a big Cartier collector. And, you know, I, I think that that's a, that's kind of, you know, if I had to think about it, that that'd be a place to, to think about as, as well. Uh, you know, among the, among the big brands, I'm a big fan of Lange, Elange and Zona, the German makers. Uh, you know, if we're talking about watches that 
hold and gain value, maybe not so much, uh, but they're fantastic watches. Dan, you called yourself a horologic manipulator. Horological <laughs> manipulator. Yeah. I was just, you know, what am I going to brand myself with out there in la la land? So, uh, master, I'll leave, I'm not into that kind of stuff. But a horological manipulator fits in with, in time, what watchmaking is right now. That's what I do. And that's what a lot of my friends do as, as ghost builders for some of the brands that, that Gary was talking about and, and others. The, the large, large, large brands that are called independent, but they're, they're pretty, you know, almost billion dollar companies at this point. Well, you had a role at a big brand and then many of your independent friends also ghost building for big brands. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious why consider a big name brand and I also want to ask you about like budget. What do you think I should be budgeting for a first watch purchase? Well, I think what's happened in the last 15 years, because I used to be a, a vintage restoration specialist, and my specialty was Patek Philippe, because there were no more parts anymore. That's what my service centers did make parts that really no one in the United States was ever making wheels and pinions back then. There was no internet or anything like that. So unless you went to Switzerland to a select school like mine, uh, you didn't know how to do any of that. So those watches that used to be like a man of the moon, Omega and Patex will come across my bench all day. I could have bought a, a you know, a used man on the moon for $850 every day of the week. That is now what's considered vintage watches now. And it flipped and they become extremely valuable and fluctuate, you know, market fluctuates. As, 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 and I always recommend that watch to everybody. Buy yourself an Omega Man on the Moon. I don't care. Pick your style, Man on the Moon. Don't worry about investing. It's not terribly expensive. That's what I was going to recommend to you, Andy. Uh, it'll stand the test of time. And that's what I tell people to invest in in, in, in the lower tier. Uh, meaning <laughs> what used to be $3,800 now is about $10,000. Maybe you might get in just a little less than that. And get yourself a man on the moon and you can wear that every day of your life. You can beat the snot out of it. You can wear it from the beach. You can wear it to the moon. I mean, you can beat the crap out of it. You can drop it on the ground. It'll last you until you're gone. And then you can leave it to somebody else. If you want to keep moving up, you can you know, buy yourself a Rolex. Some of them appreciate. I mean, I'm one of the only two watchmakers ever to, to be inside the the second most expensive Rolex in the world, which is the Rolex Zerograph uh, for, for, for Philips, actually. Um, so they do appreciate, you know, to millions and millions and millions, but really don't, don't bank on that. Buy what, 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 you, what, heart, what your heart tells you, but know what's inside if you go in the mechanical route, meaning do a lot of research because there's smoke and mirrors everywhere and it's not a quartz battery watch, which we don't, and watchmakers don't call those are watches. They, they aren't. They're, they're risk computers. Before we had risk computers, the, it's a battery with a circuit board. And most of the time, they're around 20 to $35 for uh, somebody to just replace it when it goes bad. You, you don't fix those. So if you're in the lower $1,000, $1,500 range, that's nowadays, that's probably what you're going to fall into. So it's more of a fashion thing that fits you for that time. Still a good thing that tells time, but it is more of a fashion thing than 
uh, something that where you're actually paying for what's inside the watch, meaning a mechanical timepiece. 90% of what you're paying for is for that micro machine that, that I build here from a raw metal. That's, that's why watches are expensive when they get uh, to be handmade. We have to make every wheel and gear and pinion and everything. It's, it's not a circuit board and a battery. The moonwatch. And, 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 sorry, and I've got bad okay. news for you, which is from from you know the the, the brands that I mentioned earlier. Uh, for your first watch, any watch you want, you're not going to get. Um, that's kind of the bad news, you know. So if you say, "Gee, I'd like a you know an Audemars Royal Oaf, maybe a steel with a blue dial," you're not going to get that. If you say, "I'd like a nice Rolex Daytona." you know, a chronograph and steel, you're not going to get that, uh, you know, a protect Nautilus, I'm sorry, you're not going to get that. Um, so, you know, that I, I think the, the Omega moon watch is a great idea. Um, there, and there are other watches out there and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. But, uh, one of the problems as someone who's, who's new is what used to be entry-level watches for the big makers. You know, the steel sport watches are now the hype watches and have gone up a lot in value and, and production is limited, whether that's naturally or artificially. Uh, and they're very, very hard to get if you don't have an established relationship with the brand. So unless you, you, know, you have the patience to go through that you know, initiation and say, well, maybe I'll buy a few pieces I didn't really, really want, but you know, I'm gonna get uh, such and such at the end of the end of the highway, I think you know going some other paths is going to work out better for you. Mm -hmm. Is the Moonwatch that's a stainless steel chronograph? It's a chronograph that comes well now. There's 37 different flavors, but there's one right. that's the uh, the predominant Moonwatch, and they brought back uh, the original movement as well. But, but then they get a little pricey. And there's one that has a ceramic case with their with their newer movement. A movement, for those that don't understand, is that's what we call the machine inside. Sometimes you'll hear someone say it's a caliber or, or a movement. Uh, that's the machine inside, and that's what you're paying for. Um, it, it really is, you know, a basic movement is maybe 220 parts that have to be manufactured from raw materials. So, how much does a moon watch go for used? Uh, probably more than a new one, right, Gary? <laughs> Depends on the model. Yeah. It's, it's that vintage thing again, you know? That's where you start falling. Is that right? Yeah. Well, it's I funny because, you know, yeah, you know, watches that I bought new at retail in the 1990s are now called neo-vintage. It's the new thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, like, great. I can't. I can hardly wait for the value of these things I've got in the back of the safe to explode. And of course, very few of <laughs> them ever have a chance of that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, a thirty-year-old watch now is is getting to you know as as you say, Dad, you know, getting into that territory of collectability and uh, you know the value movements up and down uh, cyclically that you expect of something that's a collectible object. See, Andy, it's no different than what happened to the vintage watches than what what happened to uh, to cars. Uh, when watches would come across my bench, and you know, pretty much every make there was that was a, you know a good watch and Rolex certified and pretty much certified for most of that stuff. Uh, if, if something was really destroyed or somebody went swimming in it or whatever, it was retired. You know, we, we just we just said it's just not worth repairing because they really were, you know, a Rolex was $3,800 for, for a Jubilee or what, maybe pushing $4,800. It was retired. It really wasn't worth my time as a watchmaker because the invoice I would give you, it doesn't, doesn't correlate. So I would take that 
uh, they would buy a new watch and then that goes in my parts drawer and I just use whatever's usable for parts for somebody else. And that went on and on just like cars. So it depleted what was out there. So the supply and demand for vintage watches is, is, uh, is driven the price uh, relatively high for, for specific models. You guys have reminded me that in my family, there's a rose gold Rolex. I don't know what, I don't know what type, but my grandfather owned a rose gold Rolex and I am not like, I'm too young to have uh, inherited it. My, my older cousin has it. But since we're having this discussion, it reminds me that I need to talk to him because he has no kids. So maybe someday <laughs> if I outlast him, when he expires, I'll be like, Fred, if it's don't a forget small, that watch. If you remember, if it's maybe a little bit uh, petite, then it would, if it's, then it's rose gold, more than likely it would be a, probably a bubble back. Yeah, I think it is a bubble back. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, I'll talk to Fred. You, yeah, grab it while you can. Because again, what's inside those timepieces, when I open up those timepieces, you know, as a watchmaker, we look inside and go, now that's a watch. See, that's what we care about. We don't care about if the dial is pink and blue and it has 37,000 diamonds on it. I mean, I worked at Chopard, one of the biggest diamond jewelry, you know, uh, uh, companies in the world. I mean, there's people, I did watches that had so many diamonds on everything. I didn't even see the watch anymore. And then the, and then the lady says to me, I'm not good enough. I want, I want to feel the diamonds. I want them inside. <laughs> like, what? Like, she, like we, nobody's going to see it. She, she didn't care. Just, I, I want to feel them inside. And then she had... Uh, one of the early clips you had on the show here showed the show part with the spinning diamonds, spinning diamonds in there. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's to each his own, right? Um, but more than likely, it's watchmaking is a bad, bad, bad disease for collectors and people who really fall deep. Because as soon as that watch is given to that person, because they went from there, then she wanted black diamonds. It was good, it was good. but the yellow diamonds were enough. Now I want the same version in black. It's, it, it's that disease, no matter if it's for fashion or it's for the mechanics, like, uh, like it's for a perpetual calendar or you want one of my, you know, detent spring statements because there's only two of us in the whole world that actually build this thing. You know, if, if that's your thing, you fall in deep and the disease hits you like someone who collects Ferraris or someone who collects Camaros. There's just different ends of that spectrum. It's good to have wealth so you have choices. Let's go to segment three. In the ever-evolving luxury watch landscape, a notable shift has thrust independent watchmakers into the spotlight. Once in the shadows, these artisans now emerge as pioneers, captivating both seasoned collectors and newcomers alike. No longer confined by the considerations of expense or time that differentiate them from industry titans, Independent watchmakers have become the ultimate expression of artisanal, conceptual, technical, and artistic ingenuity. Their creations weave narratives of dedication and passion, offering a departure from conventional mass production. Selecting an independent timepiece isn't merely a choice. It's an immersion into authenticity, individuality, and the true essence of craftsmanship. Join us as we explore the world of independent watchmaking where each timepiece serves as a testament to unparalleled creativity, challenging norms, and inviting enthusiasts on a journey of distinctive horological expression. 
All right, Dan, this is your category. I know that you're building these beautiful watches for heavy metal fans. Talk about like the power of the independent watchmaker. Oh, actually, it was, it was pretty well explained in your intro, too. Um, you know, we emerged um, from a gentleman who brought back this resurgence named Paul Gerber uh, in Germany. Um, Paul uh, is in the Guinness Book of World Records for making the most complicated timepiece ever created in the history of anything. And that was for Patek Philippe. So to show you what a ghost builder is, Paul for many years was a ghost builder. But all the big brands, when they needed some special model made, the, 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 even the master watchmakers in their little in their rooms at these big brands back then, they didn't even have the competence, or they wouldn't let them have that time because they needed them for other things to build a limited series of ten of these crazy, complicated micro machines, meaning the mechanics that's inside. Just back then, it was a race who can who can do something that's just hasn't been done before to show off that brands what, what they can do, just like in making cars, just like you want a McLaren. It's the same thing. Paul broke out on his own, and he did an automatic system that had three miniaturized micro rotors. It's the same rotor system, the same winds to watch in a Rolex, except there were three of them that for some reason, they didn't hit each other when they were winding. And he put a little ad in the back of horological times that I saw, and it lit my fire and said, wow. You know, you could like make your own watches and sell them. How? Because this is before the interweb. Like, how, how do you how do you do that? How do you market it? You don't have a marketing team. I don't have you know forty fifty million dollars to get it out there. So once the internet came, that just exploded. All my friends that were ghost builders just said, "Wait a minute, why am I making him all that money? Uh, if I could slowly start buying machines and then fixing them up, you know, maybe I only got to come up with half a million to a million dollars worth of machines and I can break out and I can go directly to the customer and I can make my art with no boundaries, no boardroom to tell me I can't make this mechanism that I've been dreaming and I can't sleep for the last three years because it's it's a, a mechanism like my escapement that hasn't been done since 18 something and it never worked back then. Well, I can miniaturize it for wristwatch and I can do a single impulse detent escapement, which is more accurate than any Swiss watch that there is. And it's too costly for a big brand to make. So that's what I do. And that's what a lot of my friends do. But we, just like my past music, which was thrash metal, you know, I helped to bring up a new form of music. Each one of us has a story. And you get to see our story online. We follow, we're mainly on Instagram, that's what we talk about. So collectors fall in love with our struggles with our story, it's not easy to do what we do. It's, it's, oh, it's insurmountable. It's insurmountable in my country, that's for sure. Because we don't have any watchmaking, anything here, zero. So each little independent guy has a story and his struggle, and he has a mechanism and a timepiece that represents him just like he was painting, painting. And then the brains get bigger. You know, he's not just one guy, maybe he's doing well, now he has three helpers because it's exploded so much that most of them are sold out for five, 10, 15 years, easy. But we can only produce so much and we put a cap on it. It's not about getting rich, as rich as rich as we can get. Um, most of us, uh, even who brands that want to be a little bit bigger, like a Vutalainen or a Crivia, they cap at around 40 or 45 
watches or so. And there's a small team, one big building. That's it. It's quality over everything else. That's enough. Enough is enough money, if you know what I mean. Uh, because after that, then you need big boardrooms, and it just gets all watered down to shit. You got to make the create the supply and demand routine and branding. And you know? oh, you can't have your Rolex Daytona because we can't make enough. Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Go to Switzerland. All they got to do is turn the dial up and you can have as many Daytonas as you want. Uh, we don't do that. You know, we take our time to build our timepiece and mostly by hand because we cannot buy the parts to make small quantities. We can't call Switzerland and say, I want 10 uh, balance wheels. Or I want 10 hairsprings or I want 10 jewels. They don't even answer unless you buy a thousand of, of everything. So we have to manufacture a facility here where I have a complete machine room on the other side there. There's massive Swiss machines. Uh, we got to go to school for CNC. We got to go to school for CAM, which is the program CNC. CAD, we have to know how to run these old machines from the 40s and 50s that make dials and do the Geneva striping and build them. And it's, it's a really cool thing to watch somebody's perseverance. Everyone becomes part of the family. The same as what thrash metal was in the beginning for us, Anthrax, Metallica, Slayer, and everyone but all the record companies said, your music sucks. It doesn't sound like everybody else. You don't fit in the box. Well, you know what? Independent watchmaking is exactly what thrash metal is. We don't fit in the box. But do you like our box? I love the parallel. Gary, I know that your collection leans heavily towards the work of living artists and craftspeople. That includes independent makers. Share your kind of journey, like how the independents fit within your collection and what your thinking is. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the journey, you know, started really with friends and uh, back, you know, in ancient times, early 2000s uh, on online forums where we got exposed uh, on a place called The Purists to independent watchmaking and people who were enthusiastic about the independent makers. And I you know, was very lucky. There was a guy named Tim Jackson who had a little store here in Northern California, and he was fanatical about the independents and introduced a lot of us to them. And so we got kind of an early start uh, as, a, as a collector group here on the West Coast. Uh, in in meeting them. And uh, Dan, you've heard me say this before, meet the maker, want the watch, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, it's that connection with their personal journey. I mean, I think, Dan, you articulated extraordinarily well that, uh, you know, it's, it's art, right? People say, well, isn't Patek Philippe independent? Well, they're privately owned, but that's a different thing, right? To me, independent watchmaking is when a, a person or a small group of people express their artistic vision in mechanical form, okay? It's an act of self-expression. It's, you know, as Dan says, it's often not really a business model. Uh, you know, it can be, but often not. It's not a micro brand, which is, a, you know, a design-led exercise where you cut costs and uh, get a cheap movement and market directly. Um, it's art, it's art. Right and and uh, and Patek at their high end they make excellent watches. Longa makes excellent watches, but in a lot of ways it's it's a difference between buying a Ferrari and buying a Picasso, right? Yeah, you buy the product of an enterprise versus buying the artistic output of an individual. And uh, you know, and to to be I mean it's it's, it's a self flattering term, but to, to be a patron 
of those people who have had the courage to do that, especially when it you're guaranteed, almost guaranteed to go broke. Um, it's important. I think it's important for people to do. People are enthusiastic about watches to support living watchmakers. Uh, you know, Mr. Dufour, um, he started in the 90s. He told us that he didn't bank a single dollar. He didn't save a single dollar uh, in the bank until 2011. Um, you know, and, and so it, it wasn't that he it wasn't a get rich quick scheme. So if you look at Dufour or you look at some of the emerging newcomers like Rachef Rachefi with Akrivia or Peterman and Badat um, or Hajime Asaoka in Japan, um, you know, they're, they're telling you something about themselves and their vision. And to me, it's extraordinarily powerful. And I'm 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 really uh, honored to be able to own some of those watches and to know the people and to visit their ateliers and to see their their creative processes, but also how they do the thing. You know, to watch Mr. Dufour put a bevel on a piece of metal. I'll tell the story really fast. I thought that he put it in a vice and kind of, you know, do that. And I saw, saw him do it. And he's holding the part in one hand and he's got the, he's got the file in the other hand. And I said, geez, isn't that, isn't that awfully difficult? You know, I would think, and he said, look, if you're playing the violin, if you clamp the violin like this and you try to make the bow work, it sounds awful. But if you let the bow find the string, you can make beautiful music. And I thought, man, that, it still gives me chills down my spine. You know, it, that, that kind of knowledge. Like, like DeFore had his stories. We, we mentioned him because he's, you know, he was an early person that was in this, like, uh, Paul Gerber. But then now, because of the internet, there's people all around the world that can be represented. The watch doesn't have to be from Switzerland. There's a gentleman, like, uh, in Japan called Masahiro Kukuno. So hey, to, get, to show you that it's all about the story and the impact someone from a small country like Japan can have, he decided I'm going to make a watch before, like before there was light bulbs. No CNC is allowed. I would literally use files, and and eventually after the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, I actually produce. It won't take me two years. They'll get faster, and my techniques will get faster, and that's my art. So if you want the early ones, they'll be hacked to death. The finishing will not look nothing like Philip Dufour because that's not his gig. His gig is it's art. It's messy. That's me. It'll get better over time. And he had such an impact because he found an old Swiss machine that was a pantograph used back then to do lettering and stuff on coins or whatever. It was. He wasn't even using watchmaking. And he figured out a way that that would make the main plates of the watch that all the jewels get pressed in instead of using a jig boring machine that's custom made for it or a CNC machine. Now... The school in Switzerland that teaches watchmaking teaches a, on a pantograph, and they put a pantograph in a Swiss school because of the impact that one person's art and how he makes that art is made. That's the impact independent watchmaking can have from that level to some of my friends who are still ghost building for other and bigger independents and, 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 and name brands. We're, we're, we're all over the place. And it's a wonderful thing to be part of. It's it's exploded. Um, it can be costly, uh, but you, you can also personalize your timepiece as you would when you order a, a McLaren or something like that. The structure is there. We can only bend so much because we've spent years making our mechanics a certain way. 
but it can be decorated a certain way for you. And not just engraved, but certain things can be really customized for that customer. And collectors really, really like that because again, now it pulls on their heartstrings and it really feels very special uh, to them. That no, not just nobody else has a watch like that, that it really is, like it's theirs. You know, like he, wow, I couldn't believe that guy like did that for you, for me. Like, I mean, he had to like redesign his machine to do that for me. And that happens. And that, you know, that's what art's all about. I love the passion in your voices. I think I need to limit my discussions and exposure to Dan and other independents. Otherwise my kids <laughs> may never go to college. Let's go, let's go to segment four. In the intricate world of watch investments, understanding the market's nuances and the art of valuation is key. Grasping market trends, the importance of rarity and exclusivity, guides in recognizing watches with potential for higher appreciation. Assessing a watch's condition, its history, and the brand's heritage are vital in understanding its value. Research is pivotal. Using online forums, auction house records, and appraisal services provide essential insights. These tools can help in navigating market dynamics, predicting future values, and assessing the watch's standing in the global market. However, watch investing isn't just about passion. It's a balance of love for horology and strategic financial planning. Consider factors like insurance, proper storage, and risk mitigation strategies are essential. This journey through watch investing unveils both successes and lessons. It's a path lined with opportunities for those who seek to merge their appreciation for timeless craftsmanship with astute investment strategies. Gary, I think you said that watches are not a great investment, or at least that's the message that you've shared on panels. In your experience, have you like flipped a watch? Have you sold a watch to buy another watch? Oh. Um, just curious, like what your experience <laughs> has been with like valuation? Yeah, bad. Um, <laughs> it worked. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I left my own devices, I'd spend my entire retirement fund on watches, but I like being married. And so I don't. Um, and so what that means is uh, now that I'm, you know, CEO emeritus of a firm instead of being the CEO of a firm is that I don't have that big year end bonus coming in anymore. And I sell, I have to sell to buy. I mean, even in the early days, you know, you sell three to buy one and then you sell three of those to buy one. And you sell, and then pretty soon you got five fantastic watches. You got nothing to wear. So you start all over again and you buy yourself a $3,000 watch and you kind of run the whole cycle. So no, I've bought and sold a lot of watches. I, as a point of pride, I'm not a flipper. Uh, I don't believe, I mean, I've had the chance. This watch that I'm wearing, uh, I paid, I don't know what, 103000 Swiss for a few years ago after waiting for it for three years. And a guy offered me 350,000 bucks for it, not that long after it. Uh, and I did take it. Um, and now the watch is worth a lot less than that because this is one of these hype watches that everyone wanted and now they've made more and the market that, you know, the, the, mm. that spike is, has come back down to some more realistic low. It's still worth more than I paid, but, but that's not really my thought process. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I'm not transactional. I'm not financially transactional for watches. I will confess that there was a recent watch I was offered that I bought that I wasn't quite sure about, but I knew the moment I walked out of the store, it'd be worth two X. Uh, and so I took it. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, without sin 
but uh, sometimes you have to buy to save. You know, you got to spend money to make money. Or as a friend of mine, you say, the less you bet, the more you lose when you win. But um, in any case, um, yeah. So it's it, it's sure you know finances enter into it. And again, I, as I said earlier, I think we may be in a time, especially you know, with a flight to quality, if you're getting access to and buying the right watches, the right references, so-called, um, there's an opportunity over time for, you know, to follow a, a, a upward trending lines in terms of value, that the great watches, it's more like the car market. I think you said that earlier, Dan. It's more like the car market became a while ago where for the right car, not Studebaker's, um, but for Ferraris and other, you know, qual and for select items, the Fiat Jolly is a car I'd love to own, but they keep going up in value. Um, that, that, you know, that, that basically you, you can, you can kind of build some part of your assortment of watches around, around that idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the vintage whole thing we talked about earlier, you know, and added to the bonus is if you have one of these timepieces, like in your family, uh, Andy, and, and no Hackmaster was in there. I like calling them Hackmaster. That's one thing. But again, in my time, those watches weren't, they would, they weren't worth what, they, what they're worth today. And if the person's dial started getting condensation inside their Rolex or whatever the watch was back then, uh, you know, we, we swapped it up. We sent it out to be refinished. It's just a normal thing. You didn't want to look at an ugly stained dial. Now that watch is worth almost nothing because it's just like the car thing. The car isn't kept in the, it's not a barn find. Mm. So if you got the barn find, you know, all, all, all that, uh, all that applies. And now you have that, that, that watch in your safe that everybody wants. And that fluctuates like, like any other market. For me, my nose is always, is, is in what I do and, and independent brands. And I see a lot of people who, uh, you know, have made a lot of money of getting in early. And that's what I was speaking about earlier, how people are, um, you know, investing in watchmakers who are going independent and starting up behind the scenes. You don't even know what they're, what they're coming out with. And they're doing that because they love this hobby. I mean, Gary has a very bad disease. He's wearing a perpetual calendar. That pretty much tells you already everything about him. If you have a perpetual calendar, it's not, it's, it's also like, it's like driving an old Ferrari because they, they have a tendency not to work correctly. And when they break, you, you better have, you're going to be in shock for the first time you get the bill when it's your, if it's your first perpetual calendar. So the disease multiplies wherever you are across, if, if it's with the brands, if you're into complications, or if you're into independence for finishing, because you like this guy, because he, all he does is he polishes the best, he's the best polisher in the whole world, and your watch gleams. And, you know, and there's another guy, he's a complication uh, independent guy. But there's a lot of people to invest in and, uh, and really come out ahead. But it, it's gambling like anything else. You know, you can pick up somebody like Christian Kling, one of my favorite independents that most people don't even know his name. He just recently retired. And he didn't tell anyone he was retired. So if you have one of his few pieces that he made, boom. Yeah. Yeah, I get, you know, the, the, of course, getting in early, that's one of those pieces of advice. It sounds great, but it's like, well, how, how the heck do you do it, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I've had, you know, good fortune. Uh, I know I, uh, I wasn't the original owner of my Dufour, but I, I bought it 12 years ago. Um, I've gotten a Crivia. I've got, you know, a Rochette Rochette 
chronograph, uh, uh, chronometer. Um, I've, I've got an early Viani Antiqua, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but also, you know, I've bought independent watches and gotten in early and they're worth a fraction of, <laughs> of what I paid for. So it's, you know, how do you know? And as Dan's mentioned a couple of times these days, independents have gotten so popular that it's, you know, it's guys I know and their friends who a year ahead of time are getting calls from people saying, hey, you know, uh, Simone Brett's making a watch and he's going to make 12 and he's getting subscribers and it's going to be, you know, a reasonable price because he's going to basically break even to start his company. Uh, you want in. And if you're not one of the people on that message list, you're not going to get in. So, Andy, so just, just to put that into perspective, Indies have gotten so big that there is this indie, just only indie brick and mortar stores. But be, the, the wait lists have gotten so long, there's, it, there's middlemen now. My friends don't even answer emails. <laughs> you know, this, there's a middleman with the information that Gary was talking about. This gentleman, this watchmaker in the, wherever he is, he's going to be making something in the future. Would you like to get on the list? Or I can get you one of these because a guy fell out higher up on the list and I've spoken to him and he'll let that piece go to me. So they're, they're flipping these guys, no brick and mortar. And they're, they're, you know, for, and for the wealthy, the who don't want to be bothered with the hassle of, Hey, you know, you, you I sent the email to Masahiro Kokono in Japan and it's been three months and, and nothing. I, I, I even need more time. Why doesn't this guy answer this email? Does he want to make money? What's wrong with these guys? They're horrible businessmen, horrible businessmen. <laughs> he doesn't know the, the guys, you know, He's, he's sold out for the next 10 years with, you know, $20 million worth of orders. You know, he doesn't really, he doesn't need you. And so the industry has, has really exploded uh, in, a, in a good way, in a bad way. Yeah, but, and, you know, and, and those watches I'm talking about, when I bought those watches, you know, there was no, there was no indication that their value was going to go up substantially. Um, so I think, you know, the, the thing is, if you're going to, pursue or thinking about pursuing that route over some long period of time, it is about educating yourself and about building your relationships and your network and building your own discernment. You know, that that if if you're fortunate and you and you study hard enough and you understand that not everything you buy is gonna turn to gold, but that, you know, you're educating yourself. You say, you know, that Dan Spitz, I think he's onto something. And, and I'd like one of those. But the cool part of, of this whole thing, so we'll, I guess we, I don't know if you're going to end it after this, Andy, it's, it's, it's a personable thing with us. You actually, people travel from all over the world and we go out to dinner with them. We develop these personal relationships. Usually this, this person buys whatever you're going to make next time. So as soon as someone like me gets 10 customers, it's usually we don't need any more because whatever I make, that person's going to buy. We develop, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a friendship that we, we hang out with them. We go to their country. We go out to dinner with them. It's a small family thing. It's not brand, big brands and just, you know, guys in suit and ties just looking to pull the money out of your pocket. I mean, you got to kind of love what I'm making because it could take me, you know, I can only make three, three time pieces a year. You know, you, you better love what I'm freaking making. Otherwise, I really don't want you as my customer. You know, it's not, it's really about the money because we can find that other customer. We really do want a relationship with these people. And that's what independence, 
and why people fall in love with independent matchmaking besides the, our story. It really is a, it's, it's a wonderful, intimate, loving thing. The same as my music. When you went to a thrash metal concert, you didn't fit in with everybody else. You got there and you were, you know, you slam dancing where it all started. And you felt like, holy shit, there's other people just like me here going through the same shit in their lives that I'm going through. And this feels, this feels good to me. And that's the feeling I get with these people that are in the indie world. It's not about, the, I got to go to a store and a guy's got to tell me, Daytona and Steel with the, the tinted, slightly tan dial. They're only making 11 of those, and it has a shined gold number 12. And I'm thinking to myself, like, dude, dude, it's a dial. It's the same watch inside they've been making for 47 years. All they're doing is putting a dial on it with a different color. That has nothing to do with watchmaking whatsoever. Like, you really fell for that? So people climb that ladder now, and they have an option at the end to fall off the cliff and keep going, or they can fall in love with other human beings and what they represent in this world. In by what you feel, by what you love, we're going to go to our last segment. In my journey through this captivating world of luxury watches, I often daydream about the timepieces I'd love to own. It's a passion born from understanding the artistry and engineering behind each watch. I'm learning to appreciate the heritage and craftsmanship of these masterpieces. They're more than timekeepers. They're symbols of history and personal achievement. I imagine how it would feel to have one of these classics on my wrist, marking not just time, but the milestones of my journey. The watches I long for are chosen for their stories and legacy. Each one is a milestone, a goal in my personal and professional life. Owning them will be a celebration of my achievements, a testament to a path filled with learning and passion. This segment is about more than just watches. It reflects the beginning of my path in horology. It's about the timepieces that inspire and resonate with me, and my aspiration to one day make them mine. It's a journey shared by many enthusiasts, a path of discovery, appreciation, and aspiration. Gary, can you share with us what was your first watch? And then what was your first luxury watch that you acquired? The first watch I, well, the first watch that I ever had uh, was a Timex my dad gave me. Uh, the first watch I ever bought myself, I bought on a student trip uh, in Europe with a band that I was in. Uh, and I had to raise the money to go, and I had $48 in spending money, and they took us to a place called Bucher in Lucerne, and I spent 43 of my $48 on a watch. It's a watch I still have. It's a, it's a, kind, of a, it's a kind of a tonneau-shaped, blue-dialed chronometer, um, uh, and uh, it's still, I've never had it serviced. It still runs, still keeps good time, um, kind of bomb-proof. Uh, first luxury watch, uh, when I started working, uh, I saved up and I uh, bought myself a Cartier tank watch, which by today's standards is, is laughably small for a man. My wife wears it now, uh, but I still have that watch. And I paid, I think, $1,900 for it. It was on sale from 2000 uh, to 1900 And I went home and I was so worried about having spent that much money on something that I calculated that if I wore it the rest of my life every day, it would cost me 10 cents a day. And I thought, well, that's not so bad. 
um, that, you know, for 10 cents a day, I could have this watch that I really think is a beautiful, a beautiful watch. <laughs> That's a great justification. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Now it's like, oh crap! I'm not going to live that much longer, and I'm spending more money than that. So it's, I don't, I, I don't even run that calculation anymore. Uh, that disease that you had early on, it didn't work out too well, Gary. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> it never does, man. <laughs> Dan, you said that you don't wear a watch. Do you have any watches in your collection? Anything that yeah. has a special place in your heart? Yeah. My grandfather gave me a Patek Philippe Calatrava, a solid gold case that I wore for a very long time. And uh, that's really, that's all, that's what means everything to me. It, it, attached to the watch is, is a memory that can't be wiped clean. And that's attached to any watch because you'll never find usually that watch. It's kind of like trying to find that guitar. When you come see us play, there's a reason the guy doesn't play the same freaking guitar every day of his life. He switches guitars. We never really find that guitar. It gets close. I had one with my Ninja Turtles all over it. It wasn't the Turtles. It just there was something about that. But, you know, the 10 guitars a year that someone would make me by hand, they, they're all made the same, but everyone just, just didn't have you know, that, 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 that. The thing you can't explain. Uh, the same with watches. You, you'll get close. But a watch, when you finally find one that's really close to that, it really becomes your best friend, especially someone that travels. Uh, when you're all alone, you're in a hotel room, you know, you don't have much. You know, you got your, your bag, your suit, whatever you have with you. And you got your watch. And it really does. I mean, people, you talk to your watch mechanically. The reason we, as watchmakers, love winding watches, besides the automatics, add complexities to the reverse of gears it's just a bunch of whatever is every morning do we tell you just get up soon before you put it on just wind it after a, a couple of weeks or so you, it's like a thing that's if you don't do it you feel really weird it's like not having coffee it becomes a part of you it's not just a piece of metal anymore somebody made that they put their blood their sweat and their heart into it whatever that is inside your watch, that mechanism that previously, like in my Patek, you couldn't see inside. You couldn't see inside. They were capped with solid gold backs in those days. We didn't have see-through backs to watches. It didn't exist. We couldn't, wouldn't be able to waterproof them. So now you can see inside. Back then, the, my, my, my Patek, I mean, the first Patek I did as a watchmaker, above, I got on my bench and I popped the thing, and I look inside, and the way it was decorated with, most of the precision, I was like, like holy, holy shit, man, look at this thing. And then I start taking off all the bridges, taking the wheels out, and I pick a bridge up, and I look underneath the freaking bridge. The bridge is, you know, you, you, there's a big plate, and then you put some wheels on and pinions, and then each wheel and pinion has a little, a little, a little, what we call it a cock, because they're not really a bridge, they're a one-sided bridge. And, and, and that holds the, the ruby in the top to that. We look under that, and it's decorated. I mean, decorated, I mean, perlage. Somebody polished it and then did perlage. The only human that's ever going to see that is the watchmaker. That's what we do. No one will ever see that but us. And, man, you just sit back. You throw your tweezers down on that first Patek, vintage Patek, and there's somebody did that by hand, not by CNC now, and you just go like, uh, I, like you just like, speechless. 
You know, like, I, I, I got, like, I can forget, you know, this brand. I, I need to get me one of these. Like, hope, like wow. That's, and, and that's what we are now, you know, as, as indies. You know, we do all that by hand, just like they did in the 30s and 40s on the same machines that they discarded and let rot in the bottom of their, their facilities for 60 years in these big brands. And they switched to CNC. We went there now and we're, we're pulling them out. And they're just rust balls. And I spent two years restoring my machines. And those machines have been resurrected who made those great watches. And they're all in our facilities. And that's what we do. I love the Easter egg from one watchmaker hidden for the next. Gary, I'm very impressed by your collection. Any final thoughts? Well, you know, it, 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 since this, this part of the discussion is about advising you on what watch, uh, or how to think about it anyway. Uh, you know, good news is the market is soft right now. Bad time to sell, good time to buy. Uh, and particularly, you know, if you're thinking vintage, there are some watches, uh, oddly enough, uh, vintage uh, Patek Calatravas, you know, three-hand watches, hours, minutes, and seconds that used to be really popular. And now, you know, they're a little out of fashion, but they're going to come back. So you might think about that. If if you're thinking about one of the big famous brands and you just gotta have, you know, the one, uh, well, go start building that relationship now. You know, find the brand boutique or the authorized dealer, get to know them, show interest, show that you're a legitimate guy that you understand and are interested in watches. Uh, do your research, do your reading, talk with people. There are some brands out there that have been around a long time, like Parmigiani, for instance, uh, you know, they have a new CEO, Guido Terreni, and he's doing great things. And, uh, you know, those watches, particularly pre-owned, can be had at a reasonable price, and they're really cool watches. Uh, and, you know, just to get involved with a kind of an offbeat but high-quality watch that could ostensibly be worth more in the future, something like that. Jean Arnaud, the young guy at uh, Louis Vuitton, he's doing all sorts of things to turn that from a fashion brand or a, a lifestyle brand into a legitimate watch brand. So I think there are, you know, Dan talked earlier about getting in early with independence. I'm not sure how you get in that deal flow other than to, you know, make, make good friends who, uh, who are already in it. Uh, and you might think about that, that too, but there are a lot of paths in. I think the moon watch is a great idea. I think there are a lot, the, the great thing is there are a lot of great watches out there. And, uh, you know, from and by makers, large, small, known and lesser known, uh, we had a dinner with Mr. Dufour a couple of years ago. Uh, it's kind of a tradition with our group. And uh, always he tells us, he gives us some pearl of wisdom. And I said at the end of the day, I said, Mr. Dufour, you haven't given us any wisdom yet. What do you got? And uh, we're just kind of cheeky, uh, you know, for the world's greatest living watchmaker. And he didn't pause more than a second. He said, take your time. There are a lot of watches out there. And that watch you think today you just have to have, maybe you don't. And uh, just be thoughtful. And it's a journey. And just go out and enjoy the process and the people. And I guess if I had one word of advice, you know, it's all about the people. There are watches involved. Uh, but it's, you know, creators like Dan and um, fellow enthusiasts that really make this rewarding for me. Yeah, Great Gary, advice. Gary just drove home my point. So he travels all the way to Switzerland just to go out, out to dinner with another independent watchmaker before. <laughs> see, <laughs> see how it works. 
I said, Andy, Andy uh, uh, we live in a different world now. Um, be very careful what you slap on your wrist and where you go with the name. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of what's been happening, but it's not just like in high crime areas that someone's going to hit you over the head like they did in the 1950s or 60s. Um, you know, the name brands attract attention. They're easy to target and easy. They know what you got. You know, if you're just the person who wants to uh, wear a timepiece to show someone else that you're wearing, you know, that you, you spent some money on a timepiece, it's very dangerous out there. So you will, you'll, you'll spend a lot of money and not be able to enjoy it uh, because you'll be scared right away. Another reason that our Indies are under the radar, nobody knows what you got strapped to your wrist. Um, I'm a I'm a man on the moon guy. Uh, the ceramic, even their new movement over there with the George Dan George Daniels escapement. British guy somehow made his way, cracked the Swiss code, made the Swiss buy his patented escapement. This is George Daniels, okay, um, and that's in that 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 man on the moon uh, and most of the, the new movements uh, for Omega. So they they keep better time. Uh, independence. Um, Good luck with trying to find like uh, the real Daniel Roth, which is uh, Gene Daniel Nicholas. Uh, he got his name stolen from him, the Daniel Roth brand, and he's not even allowed to use his real name on his timepieces, but he makes about two or three tourbillons, uh, if you can afford one. Uh, I, as a watchmaker, I would say get it because he's not going to be here that much longer. That would be an incredible investment. And, uh, and if you want to go below the, the Omegas, uh, I, I'm not really first in that. I think mechanicals kind of start around that eight and a half grand mark. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for taking me down the rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be an enjoyable time. Uh, my takeaways are that watches are deeply personal. Luxury watches can be an emblem of artistry, symbols of sophistication, vessels of financial wisdom. And we talked about iconic watch brands, big watch brands, frequently being the cornerstone investment of a watch portfolio. But it's worth looking at smaller makers, independent makers who are truly unique. And I guess then the biggest takeaway, which we was just mentioned, it's not just about a watch on your wrist. It, it's about people. It's about community. It's about the people making it. It's about people wearing it. It's about having friends who can get you in on a list um, for access. So I want to thank the panelists this evening. Thank you, Dan, for returning to Inspired Money. Everyone can find him at danspitz.com. He's got some great pictures and images of the watch that he referred to tonight and that he is making and selling. And then Gary Getz, thank you so much uh, you can find him at Instagram.com slash Gary G underscore one. We are off for the rest of this year at Inspired Money. I wish you a happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and happy holiday season. Inspired Money will be back on Wednesday, January 10th at 6 p.m. with episode 18. We're going to be talking about retirement planning strategies, designing a future of financial independence. Have a safe new year celebration and make those new year's resolutions be sure to make them big and bold and do something that scares you because that's where the magic happens thank you everybody <laughs>